0: Annihilation. 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 Annihilation.
1: Annihilation. Annihilation. Annihilation.
0: Annihilation. Annihilation. One minute at a time. At first I was furtive, unraveling only at night, and only by the light of a single oil lamp, whose mauve shadows swooned over the surface of the weave, an effect I only later learned to make, a secret between myself and the shuttle's slow, deliberate slide across the frame. And who's to know the shame I felt, as if each new row I wove were a promise I would break, every ripping out a lie in reverse. My sins, and they were sins, were sins of erasure, of abstaining from whole cloth, and worse, sins of pleasure, too, the feel of a loosened strand juttering across the hem the way the weft raised itself up lewdly, like a lifted dressing gown. Sometimes I think the loom looked better, bereft of thread. The truth is, not long after he left, the suitors became fewer, came only to pass the time to trade their embellished tales of hardship and renown not to watch a woman weave on epic tapestry in the corner of a room. The day Odysseus came home to Ithaca, I swore I'd put away my task, my journeyman's loom, but save that long crimped strand of thread so that when he finally took me to his bed, I could dream of all those. Nights of surreptitious longing, just as he would dream of the sea, the soft tongues of the waves licking the sides of the hull, a rope looped tight around his chest, the sirens call. Jean Wagner, Penelope's Song This night scene in the house in Ville-Purdue begins differently in the script. As Lena wakes, Raddick tosses something. It lands on Lena's lap. Lena looks down and sees Kane's face looking at her out of her open silver locket. Lena's blood freezes. She looks up. Just in time to see Thornsson spin her rifle around and smashes the stock down knocking Lena out cold. Cut to black. Then cut to... Interior, Ville Perdue slash house slash front room, night. The viewfinder POV of a camera as it powers up. The camera is being handheld by Radic and is filming Lena and Dr. Ventress, who are both tied to kitchen chairs, wrists bound behind the backs, ankles tied to the chair legs. Blood has run down Lena's face from a cut inside her hairline. Dr. Ventress is bruised under the eye. Thornton stands in front of them, holding her gun. Dr. Ventress. Thornton? Thornton's gun swings immediately to Dr. Ventress. Thornton cuts in. Shut up. The gun swings back to Lena. Thornton. Continued. Keep talking, Karens. Cut out from Raddick's camera POV. The rest of the scene intercuts the camera footage with normal photography. Lena. But Thornton... I'm telling you, that's all there is to it. He's my husband. He was on the previous mission. He went in, came out, and was sick, and I needed to understand what had happened to him. I thought maybe if I knew what had damaged him, I could... Thornson cuts in. Bullshit. You think I don't know this whole thing's a setup? You two, you've been working together. You tricked us. You lied to us. You led us here. Thornsson's gun swings back to Dr. Entress. Thornsen continued. Tell me I'm wrong. Dr. Ventress, you're wrong, but you're also not interested in hearing the truth. Dr. Ventress looks at Thornsson, hard, unfazed. Dr. Ventress, continued, or not able. Thornsson, what do you mean by that? Dr. Ventress, isn't it obvious? obvious. Dr. Ventress looks to the video camera, to Radic. Dr. Ventress, continued, tell me, Radic, if the shimmer is refracting us physically, couldn't it refract us psychologically too? Our perception? Our minds? Thorenson. Wow. You're a real piece of work, Ventress. Dr. Ventress. Does Thorenson's behavior seem rational to you at this moment? Does it seem sane? Thorenson. See what she's trying to do, Raddick? See how she's trying to twist this? Dr. Ventress turns back to Thorenson. Dr. Ventress. You really can't see that what's happening in this room is exactly what happened on the previous missions? Raddick. Thorenson. It is possible. What she's saying, Thornton. Jesus Christ! Don't listen to her, Radic. But it is possible. Think about what's happening in this place. The things we're seeing. We could all be locked in some kind of rolling hallucination. At that moment, Radic is interrupted by the sound of screaming. Except in the film, Radic is tied to a chair, just like Lena and Ventress are, and all three are gagged.
1: (laughs) snap <laughs> you
0: Helen Lewis, New Statesman, March 2018. Quote, Vulture, specifically E. Alex Young, 27th February 2018, was one of the places which looked at this majority non-white main cast and was still unimpressed. The casting of Rodriguez and Thompson, it said, creates a familiar dynamic in cases of whitewashing where people of color are pitted against each other. There's no reason why Garland couldn't have cast Thompson and Rodriguez as well as cast the other characters true to their ethnic descriptions in the book. The ethnic backgrounds of Lena and Ventress came from the later books in Vandermeer's trilogy. Garland was too busy adding stolen elements from J.G. Ballard to bother with more Vandermeer. But back to Lewis. This seems like an oddly box ticking approach to diversity, and one which lumps together Annihilation with something like Ghost in the Shell, which took a specifically Japanese story and cast a white American, Scarlett Johansson, in the lead. This attitude also seems to expect a simple yes-no answer to, is this film feminist? Or is this film riddled with systemic racism based on a quick accounting exercise? Isn't that a joyless and reductive way to approach a piece of art? End quote. Josh Spiegel, Hollywood Reporter, 25th February 2018. Quote, Annihilation, outside of one line of dialogue from Portman's Lena, rarely makes an emphatic note of reminding its audience that the main characters are mostly women. Oscar Isaac and Benedict Wong are the only two men in the film who have substantial dialogue or screen time. Alex Garland adapting the Jeff Vandermeer novel of the same name, has leaned further away from the more direct male-female dynamic that made up his previous film, Ex Machina. Though Annihilation is as much about Lena's once loving and now somewhat hollow marriage as it is about The Shimmer, there are few moments among the women on this mission that are meant to suggest the impact of men in their lives. Arguably, it's this nonchalance, either built into the source material or the choice on Garland's part in writing the adapted screenplay, that works in Annihilation's favor. Though the images of these women, all toting guns and prepared to take out any mysterious alien creatures that may be waiting for them, are striking, the film does not try to linger on them deliberately. There is, in essence, no attempt in Annihilation to metaphorically nudge the audience to remember how this story is female-driven. It just is female-driven. What's more, the female characters in Annihilation all seem fairly driven and active. Their choices are their own, not made because of the men in or out of their lives. Even in the flashbacks to Lena's life before entering the Shimmer, we see her taking more action than being passively led by either her husband or her colleague at Johns Hopkins University with whom she indulges in a brief affair. The farther that Lena and the other women progress into the Shimmer, the more they're confronted, not by direct hallmarks of their dark pasts. Cass points out to Lena in a private conversation that each of them is driven into this suicidal mission by personal loss, but by the often horrific mutations that have been spawned inside the disaster zone. One of the great strengths of Annihilation goes beyond the source material, or even the striking, if frequently disturbing, visuals. So much of its emotional core is a burden borne by the lead actresses, each of whom brings a different and distinctive personality to her work. Portman is not only committed here, but as tough as an ex-soldier like Lena would be. Rodriguez and Thompson, perhaps, are the most remarkable to watch, playing radically different characters from Jane Villanueva on Jane the Virgin and Valkyrie in Thor Ragnarok, respectively. Rodriguez especially gets to display a sharpness that's intentionally not present in her work on a CW dramedy. Just as that show proved her winning charm, her work in Annihilation suggests a vast range that other filmmakers need to tap into. The women of Annihilation are a large part of why the film works. Though much of the second half of the film is driven by some genuinely surprising and unique special effects creations, ranging from the disgusting to the gorgeous, it still relies on its extremely talented ensemble to make the fantastic few real. Natalie Portman is the name above the movie's poster and brings her requisite emotional intensity to the lead role, but she's equally matched by Rodriguez, Thompson, Lee, and Novotny. A few years after Ex Machina, which relied on the depiction of men subjugating women in a futuristic, technological fashion, writer-director Garland has adapted a story almost entirely about women fighting for the future of the planet, if not their own lives, and done so with aplomb, precisely by not emphasizing the gender parity. End quote. Casey Cipriani, Bustle, 23rd February 2018. Quote, Not only are the movie's women some of the most intelligent, strong, and competent ladies sci-fi films have ever seen, but they're also very different in personality and engaging as characters. But one thing that's never given some artificial way symbolism in the entire film is the fact that this entire expedition team is made up of women. There's one single moment when Dr. Ventress is assembling the team where Lena remarks that it's made up of all women, but that's literally the first and last time their gender is even mentioned. There's no conversation about, we are trying all women this time because, or any remark about their femininity, female nature, or gender whatsoever. Their being women is just a matter of fact. It's this insignificance that makes the movie significant. And Anne Cohen, Refinery29, 22nd February 2018. Quote, Having five female leads would be enough to make Alex Garland's mesmerizing work of science fiction, based on the first novel in Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach Trilogy, stand out in a genre that has traditionally been, and mostly remains, white male-centric. But part of what makes Annihilation truly remarkable is that while it acknowledges that groundbreaking aspect, it also allows its characters to transcend their gender, avoiding turning them into token pawns in the fight for broader female representation on screen. But that in itself is a feminist act. Women and particularly women of color, starring in a complex, big-budget studio sci-fi film that isn't just about them being women, but rather encourages them to be more. End quote. Kyle Shutter, Medium, 25th March, 2018. Quote, In Annihilation, Natalie Portman, the childless wife of a military man, has to go out and find him. After cheating on him, evidence that something is not right in her own psyche, she must find new life and understand the world again. Natalie Portman is a scientist and goes out with an all-female band. The writers have one woman note that the gun is too heavy. Well, yes, it's made for a man. The women in the band take on the responsibilities of men. They have the guns. They are scientists. Reason and logic are symbols of the masculine. The writers go out of their way to show that none of the women have children and have lost themselves. They are damaged goods looking to find something. For millennia, we have been successful as a species by respecting the masculine and feminine. Women have the most important role in our species, to have children. Men have a supporting role to make sure the children stay safe so that they can become successful mothers and fathers and so on and so forth, ad infinitum. End quote. Mary Beard, Women, and Power. Quote. I want to start very near the beginning of the tradition of Western literature and its first recorded example of a man telling a woman to shut up telling her that her voice was not to be heard in public. I am thinking of a moment immortalized at the start of Homer's odyssey almost 3,000 years ago. We tend now to think of the odyssey as the epic story of Odysseus and the adventures and scrapes he had returning home after the Trojan War, while for decades decades, his his wife wife, Penelope Penelope
1: loyally waited for him, fending off the suitors who were pressing to marry her. But the odyssey is just as much the story of Telemachus, the son of Odysseus and Penelope. It is the story of his growing up, and how over the course of the poem, he matures from boy to man. That process starts in the first book of the poem, when Penelope comes down from her private quarters into the great hall of the palace to find a bard performing to throngs of her suitors. He is singing about the difficulties the Greek heroes are having reaching home. She isn't amused, and in front of everyone she asks him to choose another, happier number. At which point young Telemachus intervenes. "'Mother,' he says,
0: "'go back up into your quarters.' and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men, all men, and of me most of all, for mine is the power in this household.
1: And off she goes, back upstairs. There is something faintly ridiculous about this wet-behind-the-ears lad shutting up the savvy middle-aged Penelope, but it is a nice demonstration that right where written evidence for Western culture starts, women's voices are not being heard in the public sphere. More than that, as Homer has it, an integral part of growing up as a man is learning to take control of public utterance and to silence the female of the species. The actual words Telemachus uses are significant too. When he says speech is men's business, the word is muthos, not in the sense that it has come down to us of myth. In Homeric Greek, it signals authoritative public speech, not the kind of chatting, prattling, or gossip that anyone women included, or especially women, could do. What interests me is the relationship between this classic Homeric moment of silencing a woman and some of the ways in which women's voices are not publicly heard in our own contemporary culture and in our own politics, from the front bench to the shop floor. It is a well-known deafness that's nicely parodied in an old Punch cartoon. That's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here would like to make it, I want to reflect on how it might relate to the abuse that many women who do speak out are subjected to even now. And one of the questions at the back of my mind is the connection between publicly speaking out in support of a female logo on a banknote, Twitter threats of rape and decapitation, and Telemachus's put-down of Penelope. My aim here is to take a long view, a very long view,
0: on the culturally, culturally awkward, awkward relationship between the voice of women and the public sphere. Of speech making debate and comment politics in its widest sense from office committees to the floor of the house i am hoping that the long view will help us get beyond the simple diagnosis of misogyny that we tend a bit lazily to fall back on lena wakes gagged tied to a chair second two, angle from the right radic Nina, mm. ventris all tied to chairs a bright light beyond them and moonlight outside curtained windows Lena turns left, sees Ventress, turns right, sees Radic, faces forward. Cut to: Thornson, from her left, mostly in silhouette, framed at the far right edge of screen, leaning against what we will soon see are built-in cabinets. Thornson dangles Lena's locket from her right hand. Thornson: Brother? brother. Boyfriend. boyfriend. Close on the locket, silver twisting open. On Thornton's hand above it, her beetle ring. Husband. Husband. It twists so that Kane's photo is visible. Cut to Lena, second sixteen. Framed separately from radic and Ventress, out of frame to the left and right, respectively. Barely lit, her breath is heavy, but on the verge of calming, the moment of panicking has passed. Second nineteen back to Thornton from her left. Husband. Husband. Cut to Raddick from the front. She turns to look at Lena, eyes wide. Cut to Lena from the front. Why didn't, didn't you tell us? Lena speaks, but the gag keeps her from being understood. <laughs> Second 26, a new angle, from behind Lena, framed at the left, on Thorinson, centered, in front of the wooden cabinet doors. Thorinson tilts her head toward Ventress. You know. Angle on Ventress from the front. Obviously. Obviously. Angle on the room, bright light at left, row of chairs just right of center, facing right, bright light, then in against the cabinets, a rifle leaning against those same cabinets to her right. Thornson steps away from the wall, toward Raddick, but she doesn't get far. Did, Did you, you know? know? Angle on Raddock, second thirty five. She shakes her head, slowly at first, then faster, tears in her eyes. Medium shot, Thornton, second 39, nodding, as Raddick sobs off screen. Okay. okay. She sniffs. The camera slowly tracks right. Thornton moves that way as well. So, there, there are two theories of what mind. went wrong in the shimmer. One is that something in here killed them, too. Two. She turns back. She's pacing, but barely going anywhere. Is it's that, that they, they went, went crazy and, killed and they each killed each other? other. Helen Lewis, new statesman. March 2018. Quote, Most crucially, Garland added a new motivation for Vandermeer's biologist, now given the name Lena, to go after her husband into Area X. She doesn't just want him back, she wants his forgiveness. And she also doesn't care too much if she destroys herself in the attempt. Why? Because, we discover, Kane left to go on the original mission into the Shimmer because he learned that Lena was having an affair. Giving this backstory to the lead character feels a more radical act even than writing five lead female roles. The idea that protagonists should be likable is screenwriting 101, and a guilty, cheating wife is a hard sell. There's even a shorthand for the moment of kindness, which screenwriters are told to include to win us over. Early on, protagonists should save the cat. Shagging a collie is pretty much the opposite of saving a cat. And while audiences might be lightly willing to accept bastardry in a leading man, provided it is camouflaged under enough charm. Think Han Solo or James Bond. To see a lead woman as unsympathetic as Lena, as clever as Lena, shot like a male action hero in functional military clothing rather than camo hot pants, that still feels daring. And Lena's unsympathetic choice is the engine for the whole narrative. She broke their marriage. Kane volunteered for the mission, knowing that he would not come back. When he did, she risked death for the small chance of saving him. A chain of annihilation. Natalie Portman's character is guilty. We discover that, but how is her guilt manifested? Not by confessions to a therapist, not by wild drinking, or excessive shouting at the children, or a new turn towards religion, says writer Andrew O'Hagan, who has known Garland for years, and who sees the film's landscape as echoing the unconscious. Rather, it is suggested by the monster she manifests in her quest to save her husband. A series of monsters that prey on other women before testing her own essence to destruction. End quote. (laughs) Thorenson stops walking away and turns back toward the women, out of frame to the left. As she speaks, her emotion becomes more evident. Josie nearly got got killed killed by an alligator, and and Cass did get killed by a bear. And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What
1: was it we said?
0: Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside.